0: Let's pray as we approach the Lord in and in through time and his word. Our holy God, we come to you now. We ask that you would be with us as we open your word. We believe that your word contains treasures for us to behold. Your word is truth. And so may we submit ourselves to it. And may there be a joy in that act of submitting And so I pray where your word confronts us this morning, I pray that we would joyfully bow our knee in submission to you. And so for that to happen, I do pray that you would graciously guide my thoughts. I pray that you would guard our hearts this morning. I pray that you would even govern my words. God, I pray that This moment of preaching would be the fragrance of life to those who are being saved. God, I pray that you would bring some this morning from death to life. And so, Lord, you have preserved your word so that we would know you. And so help us behold you for our good and for your glory, we pray. Amen. There's a psychological condition whereby people who have been taken hostage develop a strange trust and care for those who have taken them hostage. That condition is known as the Stockholm Syndrome. And it's received its name because of an incident that occurred in 1973 in Stockholm, Sweden. There was an attempted bank robbery. A former convict uh, went out, he attempted to rob a bank, and in the process, he took four individuals hostage, and he held them for 131 hours. During which he would fire his weapon at them. He would threaten to kill them. It was torture. (laughs) Though in the end, none of these hostages were harmed. And something strange happened whenever the whole situation came to an end. Whenever this man surrendered, the hostages said, we don't hate our captor. In fact, they went so far as to say we feel safer with the captor than we even do with the police and each of them refused to testify against him. A few weeks later, one of the hostages would become engaged to this captor. Can you imagine loving a person who forcefully took you beyond your will, threatened to kill you, terrorized you with weapons for five days. And can you imagine preferring this captor over those that are seeking to give you freedom? And This is mind-boggling to me. And I imagine that if one of those hostages was someone in my family, I wouldn't merely be boggled in my mind. I would be moved to anger. I would would feel a sense of just, this is incredulous. Well, in our letter in Galatians this morning, this is sort of the scenario that we've walked into. Paul, who has a genuine love... And a startling concern for these Galatian believers is writing to address their spiritual Stockholm syndrome. To be clear, Paul never called it that. But these Galatian Christians, who had once been spiritually oppressed, they had been enslaved to false religions and gods, after Jesus had set them free, now they want to go back to their slavery. And they want to try to earn the right standing with God by what they can do. And this whole letter is an urgent appeal by Paul pleading for these professing Christians to live in light of the truth that they profess to believe. And if they do not, they will be led astray from God altogether. I just want to be clear that the message throughout this This letter is not theological nitpicking. Paul's not looking at this church and these believers and saying, oh, it's not wrong in what you're doing. I just prefer that you would do it differently. No. This isn't a war of words. The essence of the Christian faith is at stake. Life with God himself is at stake. And so Paul uses this letter to take aim at these errors that the the false teachers were spreading. Those errors, those lies, were namely around two things. Paul's legitimacy as someone to be listened to and trusted. And then the other is that faith alone wasn't enough to make one an heir to the promises, to the inheritance that God has promised to his people. And so these false teachers came in and they began to cast doubt over whether or not should you really believe Paul? In his message, but they also cast doubt on whether or not faith alone was sufficient to make someone right with God. Last week we saw Paul remind these Galatian believers of who they once were they were slaves. They were slaves to sin, they were slaves under the elementary principles and things of this world. Some even were slaves to the law. And he reminds them of who they are now. You are adopted sons that have been loved by God the Father. And so don't run back. In your freedom, don't run back to uh, to the chains of slavery. This morning, we're given a unique view into the tender-hearted love and compassion that Paul the pastor has for this people. All of these theological arguments have flown. It would be easy for us to perhaps say, man, Paul is just insistent on right doctrine, sound belief, the truth. And one of the, one of the um, kind of hurdles that we have in, in walking through the letter, sort of segment, small little piece at a time, is that we f- maybe forget the whole in the big picture. And so what's clear from our passage today is that all of these tight arguments that Paul has been presenting, they're not devoid of compassion and truth. In fact, they spring from compassion and truth. Perhaps you've thought, either throughout this series or about Christians in general, sometimes I just feel that that Paul or Christians just don't really care about people. They only care about theological positions. And if you've thought that this morning, I just want to invite you into these words of Paul. This one who is fierce with the truth, but he's tender in his love and compassion for those that are being deceived by false teachers. I'm helped by what Martin Luther says about this section. He says our passage this morning, in these very words, these very words breathe Paul's own tears. And so the picture that we have is of Paul pleading with these Galatian Christians. We hear more of his counsel to these who are suffering from this spiritual Stockholm Syndrome And this example, being fierce with the truth and yet tender in love to those who you speak to. This example ought to mark, not just sort of this is what Paul did, this example ought to mark every pastor. Not only should this example mark every pastor fierce with, with truth and tender in love, it should also mark every Christian. And so as we see and, and hear his overt expression of love and care this morning, we'll see how the gospel message really is what's behind this gospel plea. And this gospel message is what's behind Paul's life's purpose for these Galatian believers. And so those two aspects of his ministry, the plea that we see and the purpose that he takes up, they will serve as the sermon points this morning. And unlike most weeks throughout the letter of Galatians, what we'll find in the letter of Galatians is that Paul is presenting this tight theological argument, which he's trying to convince these Galatian Christians, don't be deceived by false teaching, stand true, stand firm in the truth. Our text this morning is a little bit different. It's as if Paul has sort of stepped away from the case that he's making and he just eye to eye knee-to-knee, toe-to-toe with every listener, and he's saying, let me just plead with you. And so I hope in walking through these two components, we will catch some of the heart from which all of these theological cases and arguments and positions that Paul has has put forth, all of it flows from this heart of love. And so the first point this morning, we'll take a look at Paul's gospel-driven plea Paul's gospel-driven plea. And we see this in verses 12 through 16. And so listen again as I read to you the word of God. Verse 12, I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have, have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a body illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is the sense of blessing you had? For I bear witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? This section drips with warmth and affection and care and love. I mean just even the the addressing of them specifically as brothers brethren it's a it's a it has it carries with it a note of warmth and affection i beseech you i beg of you i mean paul is laboring for their good he is earnestly pleading with these galatian christians do not be led astray My sanctified imagination, I just even think Paul's writing, maybe even with tears in his eyes, longing to see these believers stand firm in the truth. He longs for their growth. He's working for their good. He's jealous for their well-being. You see, when Paul believed the gospel, he found true freedom. And in finding that true freedom... He doesn't then desire that these whom he loves, these Galatians, that they run back to slavery. He wants them to know this freedom. He wants them to live in this freedom. He wants them to know that the joy that he knows. And let's just, let's call it what it is. This ought to be the heart posture of every genuine Christian. I want others to be set free from the slavery that I was once in bondage to. I want others to know the joy that I know in knowing the God who has set me free. 85 verses into this letter. And for the first time in verse 12, we hit a command. There hasn't been a command all throughout the letter of Galatians thus far. And the first command we see in verse 12 is this, Be as I am. Now, if you're familiar with Paul and his writings, you may be thinking, okay, yeah, that, that sounds familiar. I remember at one point Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Okay, so Paul says to the church at Corinth, be like me as I am trying to be like Christ. That's not what Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 4. He says, I beg of you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. What's he saying? Well, after three chapters of this tight argument, this case, seeking to convince them to get out from under the law, and they were were prone, again, these false teachers would say, ah, it's good that you have faith, but go back and read chapter two. They were saying, but you also have to be circumcised. Look at Galatians chapter 4, verse 10, where we were at last week. They were also saying, well, you have to observe the days and the months and the feast. You have to do all of these things. Put yourself under the burden of circumcision. Put yourself under the observances, and then you can be made right with God. Paul says, no, 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 you guys need to be like me, meaning be free from living under the law. If we were to flip over to Philippians chapter 3, what we would find is Paul telling us a little bit of his pedigree, his resume. And this is what Paul says about himself. If there's anyone who should have confidence in the flesh, it's me. He would say, I was circumcised the eighth day. I was of the nation of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. To the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. This is who Paul was. Paul was a man who lived most of his life under the law. And Paul shows up to these Galatian believers. He's writing to them and he says, listen, you need to be like me now, free from the law For I have become like you. I have stepped out from being under the law. He's writing to these Gentile believers who would not have grown up under the law. The irony can't be missed. The Jewish Paul is calling these non Jewish Christians to live like he does, not enslaved to the law. You could even go back to Galatians chapter 2 verse 16, where Paul is talking about just even his testimony. He says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. And so Paul essentially says, this is who I was, one who was under the law. I'm no longer that now. And so you need to become like me. And in irony, you're trying to be like the old me by putting yourself under the law. Well, after this initial command to be like him, Paul then begins to appeal to them on the basis of the history that they have together. Paul and these Galatian believers were meaningfully connected to one another. They loved one another deeply. He begins to recall their history by just saying, You did me no wrong. When Paul showed up and began preaching the gospel to them, they did not mistreat him. He even remembers, verse 13, what led to the gospel going to them in the first place. That was a body ailment, an illness that Paul had. And specifically, verse 14, how that body illness, that sickness, that ailment, it it wasn't a burden to them. They didn't receive Paul with this sickness, this physical ailment, and and that didn't lead them to despise Paul. No, it led them to lean in, and Paul says, you treated me as though I was a messenger from God himself, even Christ Jesus. These uh, These verses provide us with a lot of questions and very few answers, right? We all want to know what sickness did Paul have. And Paul showed up and what was it? And so scholars are going to debate, was it malaria? Was it something with his eyes? There are certain things throughout the rest of this letter that would lead people to think he had some condition with his eyes that was probably even grotesque to look at. And while that may sound good, we just simply don't know what the condition was. But we do know that his appearance was not attractive. And these Galatian Christians took him in with great compassion and love and care. And when we begin to look at the letter of Galatians as a whole. What we begin to find is some of what these false teachers were seeming what they seemed to be preaching and declaring. And so it seems that these false teachers were pointing to Paul's weaknesses and his infirmities and the sickness and the illness that he has, and that that was proof for them as to why Paul shouldn't be listened to and trusted. Uh, they were saying, you don't want to follow a guy who's showing up saying, I have a message about divinity, when he's marked with weakness. The temptation would have been strong for these Galatian believers to reject one whom it would have been said of him, 2 Corinthians 10.10, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal appearance is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. I mean, so the picture that you have is that this frail, sickly guy shows up. And what would have been common in that day is sort of to discard him and to not listen to his message because of this condition. Because again, as we talked about last week, it would have been common for people to think if you had sickness, then you had done something to displease the gods. Right? Think even about in Jesus' day, when they see the man born blind, they say, well, what's this owing to? Something is wrong here. This is a weakness. This is a result of, of, of sin. This the false teachers would have contended that such a powerful message about God and from God would have been accompanied by strength and not weakness. And to their credit, these Galatian Christians did not shut Paul out. They didn't didn't write him off. They didn't ignore his message. In fact, they heard the good news of how Jesus lived a perfect life, how he died a substitutionary death in the place of sinners on the cross, and how on the third day he rose bodily from the grave. They heard that. And with all of the infirmities from which Paul would preach that, it wasn't Paul where the power resided. It was in the message. And as the message went forth, God was gracious to bring life to dead hearts. This is just a word of encouragement to us even as we're thinking about who is it that we're going to give our ears to? Who is it that we're going to follow? It would be easy for us to begin to make worldly standards be sort of the top of the list, if we're going to follow and we're going to buy into the message that this guy is preaching, then we want this guy to be this. And it's just a good word for us to remember that when handling truth and discerning who it is that we're listening to, should be less of an emphasis on appearance. Even style and all of the weight should rest in content. We want to follow those that will hold out the truth. And, and I hope you even caught the encouragement when Paul is speaking about his weakness. Verse 13, but you know that it was because of a body illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. Paul's sickness, his limitation, his weakness, that was not a liability for the spread of the gospel. No, Paul seems to say it was the exact opposite. It was the impetus for the spread of the gospel. Whether, whether Paul was in Galatia, the, this region, and, and he got sick and so he had to stay longer and that afforded him more opportunities to preach, or whether he wasn't even headed to Galatia, but he got sick and had to stop in Galatia, which, 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 whichever it was, Paul's weakness that manifested itself in sickness was the pathway by which Christ's strength and the gospel would be made known. I mean, I just think about this. I think about when, when sickness hits me. When sickness hits me, I don't think about anybody else but me. And that's, I'm not proud of that, just for the record. And my whole world caves in. I mean, one of the last thoughts, literally, in light of sickness or weakness or limitation, is, God, how might you... How might you fan into flame the spread of the gospel through this illness, through this weakness? And I'm just challenged. I'm challenged in Paul's example. Paul talks about this throughout his writings. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is one of these places. He talks about in verses 7 through 10 having this thorn of the flesh. He's begged God, verse 8, to to take this thorn. And God says in verse 9, He has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And that leads Paul to say, Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I just want you to know, you may feel like this morning, I would love to be more obedient and do more for the Lord, but I have this condition. I have this illness. I have this problem. I just want you to know that your problem or illness or condition, it's not bigger than the power of God, which is at work through you. It's not. God has always chosen to display his strength in and through the weaknesses of his people. And so, Covenant Life Church, I just want to remind you that God desires to use every bit of your life, every moment of your life for his glory and for the good of others. And so the word for each of us, in seasons of health or in seasons of sickness, keep being faithful. Keep being faithful to holding out gospel truth. And just be joyfully surprised at how the Lord may see fit to move in the likeness of a weakness like yours. Perhaps your weaknesses and your illnesses will provide you opportunities that strength and health could never afford. Faithfulness, brothers and sisters. Let's be faithful. This personal plea then crescendos in verses 15 and 16. I mean, after just saying, this is how we began. Verse 15, he then says, but something has changed. The affection, the reception, the warmth, it's now given way to, to something else. In light of the good that you guys have done me at the beginning, why have these things changed? Where is that blessedness, that sense of happiness and joy that you once had? And Paul even says, you would have been, you would have been willing to gouge out your own eyes and to give them to me. And again, some people would say, so this was clear that there was an an eye issue that Paul had. And these Galatian believers are saying, we would help you. Or others would say, this just is is an indication of the extravagant love and the deep affection that these Galatians felt towards Paul. Either way, something has shifted. Something has relocated Paul, in their minds, from being one sent of God to now an enemy. And he tells us, Paul tells us, what has made that relocation in their minds. And it's the fact that Paul insisted on telling them the truth. He told them the truth. And again, it just serves our hearts to remember this this morning. People will love it when you tell them what they want to hear. But what they need is for you to tell them what they need to hear. People love it when you tell them what they want to hear. But their greatest need is to tell them what they need to hear. And the affection and the warmth and the care and the love that this section is just drenched in, don't divorce that from this call to, I have to tell truth. No, we do speak truth, but we speak it in love. And so again, I'm I'm looking, and this just helps us understand what was happening in the context. And as as I step out of this context and I just think, what is the application then for us? I believe the application for us as a church is covenant life. What do we want to be? Do we want to be popular or do we want to be faithful? And before we can answer that at a macro level, I think I need to ask you, Christian. What is it that you want to be? Do you want to be popular in your halls at school? Do you want to be popular at the office at work? Do you want to be popular on your street where everybody loves you? Or are you more concerned about being faithful? Are you willing to tell people in love what they need to hear? And Paul's example is meant to serve our hearts this morning. And Paul even stated this in Galatians 1 verse 10. If I'm trying to win the approval of man, then I'm not a servant of Christ. I can't. I can't be. I'm helped by what John Piper says. He says, there is in every human heart an intense and powerful love for the praise of men. Just as naturally as apples fall downward, humans gravitate towards ideas and actions that would make them look great. And they resist anything that would make them look small. Covenant Life Church, I just want to remind you that when you hold out the gospel, though you may look small in the eyes of others, you are seeking to make God look as big as he really is in their eyes. That is a loss, humanly speaking, for someone to think less of me so that they would think more of God. That is a loss that is worth making every time. And so Galatians 4, 12 through 16, it's this clear plea, this affection dripping love that Paul is pleading with these believers Remember who we were. Remember how it started. What's changed? And that leads us then to the second point this morning, and that's Paul's gospel driven purpose. Paul's gospel driven purpose. We see this in verses 17 through 20. And so look again with me. They eagerly seek you. They, being these false teachers, eagerly seek you, Galatian Christians not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, not only when I am present with you, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. And so if if, if during this letter Paul has had his gaze Fixed on these Galatian believers in this section, 17 through 20, he diverts the gaze away from these believers to these false teachers and he addresses them for a moment. The word there that they eagerly seek is the word that we we get our word for jealous from. These false teachers were jealous that these Galatians uh, would follow them, that they would buy into this message. And they were jealous for these Galatians with the hopes of excluding them from fellowship with Paul and, and identifying with Paul's message. And so what these false teachers showed up proclaiming, they showed up proclaiming that their message would include them in being a part of the true people of God. They were actually excluding them from being part of the true people of God. You see, the Bible is clear from cover to cover. The way that you and I get, become a part of the true people of God is not by doing, uh, working our way, not by observing enough religious rules to get in. No, the, the way in which, the way in which that happens of us, that we become a part of his people, is that we turn away from all of those efforts and we place our faith and our trust in the finished work of Christ alone. That's the only way that we're included in the people of God. And these false teachers showed up and said, no, no, no. There's some things you need to be doing if you're going to be in. And it's interesting in describing this in verse 17, they, these false teachers are eager, they're jealous of you. But they're eager for you, not in a commendable way. I mean, this is the same Paul who would say, even if motives are wrong, but the gospel is being preached correctly, I can rejoice. And here Paul saying, no, 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 I can't rejoice in this. This is not commendable because they they are jealous for you. They're seeking you because they wish to shut you out. Contrary to what they're telling you, they are actually putting you outside of the people of God. You can't get in by doing what they're commending. But it's not just that. Verse 17 ends this way They are shutting you out so that you will seek them. And here it's as if we've hit the bottom of the why are these false teachers doing this? It's almost as if Paul has laid bare their motive here at this point. They desire to be praised, these false teachers desire to be honored. The word there, they make much of you. It's the, it's, it's, they flatter you. They puff you up. And so these false teachers show up and they flatter these Galatian Christians. Why? Not because they want their good, but because they want these Galatian Christians to attach themselves to, to them. They want the following, they want the fame, they want the reputation, and they're willing to use these Galatian Christians, in order to get it. That is always a danger as you're even thinking about who is it that I follow. Don't follow those that are willing to use you so that you will give them your allegiance and loyalty. I would just contrast this with verse 16. Paul says, I've become your enemy because I'm telling you the truth. And these people are not telling you the truth and you're flocking to them. Paul says, I held the line by telling you what was real and what was true. Other teachers come in, they make much of you, they puff you up, they tickle your ears, but they do not care for you. It's pretty interesting. The pride of these false teachers appeals to the pride of these Galatian Christians. And what's absent when pride abounds all around is love. There's no love here. It's pride feeding pride. This is what flattery does. Flattery always makes other people feel good, not for their sake, but for yours. And that's what these false teachers are doing. They're flattering these believers, not for their good, not for the good of the believers. They're flattering these these Galatian Christians so that they will receive the honor and the praise. These teachers were trying to draw these Galatians into a web of law. And let's just be clear. There's something that's flattering about their message I think if we're honest, this is true of every one of us. There is something that's flattering about the message that has baked into it that at the end of the day, you have what you need to be made right with God. And that's exactly what this meant. If, re- if we were to take, break apart, dissect the message, and we just start taking ingredients out of this message that these false teachers are teaching, this is central to it. Central to this message is that you're good enough to do what's needed in order to stand before God. You're strong enough. You're You're enlightened enough. You're not like those weak ones who tried and failed. You have the power to change. And let's be honest, we all love to hear when people tell us how good we are. There's some self esteem that can be had with law keeping. And that's what these false teachers are appealing to. Works-based salvation appeals to human pride. And the beauty of the true gospel, the true message of the Christian faith, the beauty of Jesus Christ is that he frees us from that. I mean, there's really not much self-esteem that you can have in the gospel that Paul was preaching. Uh, There's nothing flattering in his word. All right, we want to we hear, we want to talk about brokenness. We don't want to talk about sin. We want to talk about our weaknesses. We don't want to talk about our rebellion. The gospel gives us exactly what we need. We are hostile to the ways of God, and none of us want to hear that because of that, we're enemies of God. Because it, it doesn't feel like that's true. It doesn't feel like I am an enemy of God just because I'm not submitting to him. Or, or perhaps I don't want that to be true, but this is what Paul preached in Ephesians chapter 2. I mean, it, it's one of the clearest places of just describing our condition before God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we formerly walked according to the course of this world. So he's talking about, he's, he's writing to Christians, which means every non-Christian, this is true of them right now. They are being held sway by the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. And you think, okay, so just people who once were not Christians, who now are Christians, they are by nature children of wrath. And he ends verse 3 by saying, no, even as the rest. Everybody, by nature, is a child of wrath. Paul's message was not, hey, there's a little bit of good in you. Let me appeal to the good. Paul's message was, you don't need a helping hand. You need a new life. And you can't give yourself a new life. If you were to even read what he writes in his letter to Titus, he says, for we ourselves, we were once foolish, We were disobedient. We were deceived. We were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy. We were hateful, hating one another. Nobody wants to hear that. The message that Paul preached just showed everyone that you are bankrupt to do anything to be made right with God. And yet there was something appealing about these false teachers coming in to say, no, 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 hey, Paul's probably a bit extreme. Right, You have your moments, but are you really bankrupt? Like there's no good in there? No. No. You don't have to go as far as he does. Their message was much more pleasant to the ears. Paul's message is an alienating message. And it's always alienating when your pride is on the line and your pride has turned you into an enemy of God. And here's the thing, as much as you may not want to hear it, as much as those you love may not want to hear it, hearing this message is the only way that you will find true freedom. It's the only way. And this is why Paul insists in this letter that they not get away from this message. There is a freedom that is available from the pride that seeks to dominate your life from thinking that you have it in you to do something that makes you worthy to stand before God. Pride is such a dangerous master to serve because it is oh so fickle. I mean, this morning, if you believe that you are loved by God because you deserve it, then you are only going to keep being loved by God because you're earning it. And you and I both know, based on our track records over the the long haul, we we can't constantly do enough good to always earn it. And so the good news of the Christian faith in this message of what Christ has done, what Paul is laboring that these Galatian believers know, the good news of the Christian faith is that you gain a love that you didn't earn. And if you've gained a love that you didn't earn, then the best news that you will hear today is that you then have a love that you can't lose. That's the beauty of the message of Christ. And that picture will not change tomorrow or the next day. It won't even change on the day that you breathe your last. You are known by this God. And he has set his love on you. I mean, I just think, what husband, what wife, what person doesn't like to be told, Oh, honey, dear, friend, let me just count all of the ways that I love you. I mean, if I just think about it, I would love for people just to say, Justin, here is a long and specific list of why you are worthy of my love. To have someone make much of you because you deserve it, here's the problem. If it's because you deserve it, then you can lose it. What happens when things change? Well, when things change, then I long for a love that I really don't deserve. I long for a love that I couldn't have earned. I just want to remind you this morning that the love that God the Father provides and has for his people is not a love in which he says, O son, O daughter, let me count all of the ways in you. For the reasons that I love you. No, his love is rooted in covenant relationship. His love always makes the first move. And that's not flattery. That kind of love that makes much of you, not because of you, but because of the one giving the love, that kind of love is freeing and it's beautiful. The love that we receive from God is a love that we cannot earn. But praise be to God if we have received it. It is a love that we cannot lose. And here's the thing. The false teachers could not preach this message. They had to preach a message that was more enslaving. And they couldn't preach that message because they have never experienced that love. I wonder this morning if you've ever experienced that kind of love. A love that's willing to turn your back on all efforts to make yourself right before God and to really trust that the work that Jesus has done in his sinless life, his death on the cross as a substitute, and his resurrection on the third day. Do you believe that that work is enough to make you clean and right to stand before God? And if you do, and if you're willing to forsake everything else and your sinful ways that are pulling you away from being made right with God, if you're willing to forsake it, you can then know this love. You can know a love that you cannot earn, that it doesn't require your performance. And by God's grace, you can know this love that you cannot lose. And if you're not a Christian in here this morning, I would just plead with you, you will not find a better love. The world may promise it at every turn, but it cannot deliver. And it would be the joy of any Christian in this room to talk to you. Yeah, let's talk about what that means. We would love to see you come free from this slavery of sin and run into the life and light of Christ. You can be loved and forgiven. And this is the only antidote for Christians from this Stockholm syndrome. And so, if you feel like you've wrecked your life this morning because of foolish decisions, I just want you to know He has a better life to give. And He, Jesus, is the perfect match for every unfulfilled longing that you have. He is the perfect fit for every peace of the broken heart that you carry this morning. He understands you and he moves towards you in grace and love. Jesus was bound so that you might be free. He was disfigured so that you would be spared. And the purpose that we kind of pick up on in this portion of Paul's writing really is found in verse 19. What is Paul's purpose? Why is he laboring for these Galatian Christians? He's laboring so that Christ would be formed in them. I just want you to know, if you're not a Christian this morning, I prayed for you this week. I am preaching so that Christ would be formed in you this morning. And if you are a Christian, I want you to know, I prayed for you this week. Because I am preaching so that that by the Spirit, he may take this truth and Christ may be formed in you this week. Galatians 4.19 is the invitation to become what you can by putting away false saviors and coming alive to the the one true God by faith alone. And I believe this is one of the best evidences as to how we can know whether or not we have really given our lives fully to Christ is because the aim of Paul becomes the aim of every genuine Christian. I long for Christ to be formed in others. Like, I long for this to happen. Paul describes his labor like that of a mother enduring childbirth. He is in anguish. He is taking on costly pain and sacrifice, and he's laboring. Why? So that Christ would be formed in them. Galatians 4:19 is God's desire for every one of his children and Galatians 4:19 is also God's gracious wrecking ball to every complacent status quo Christian who's willing to settle for just I'm just I'm showing up to church, I'm giving a little bit of money, I'm trying to be good no 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 Paul. Paul, uh, the Holy Spirit through Paul's pen is saying, no, Christians, you were redeemed for good works that are much greater than that. Leverage your lives to see Christ formed in other people. When the gospel sets you free from fear and pride, it's not now you're free to live a life that still centers on you or that's kind of boring and bland. No, it's a life in which you get to work to see Christ formed in others. I wonder this morning when you showed up, even coming to this gathering, was that even on your mind? And I say this not to heap guilt and condemnation if it wasn't. I say that to just challenge us. We have been redeemed so that we can give our lives and leverage our lives to see others, to see Christ formed in others. Paul is a free man and he is fully enjoying the gospel freedom that's been given to him. And what's he doing with that freedom? He's pouring himself out in such a way that would bring anguish and pain to him so that it would bring Christ to others. I don't know of a better way for us to live. And we know from all of Paul's writings that he believes that Christ being formed in them is the work that the Spirit does. Paul's not doing this by himself. No, the Spirit is doing this through Paul, but Paul is availing himself. He is anguished over this process in the same way that a human life is born through the anguish of a human mother, so too spiritual life born through the anguish of spiritual fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters. The gospel sets us free from choosing comfort over seeing Christ formed in others. The gospel really doesn't merely just set us free from that. The gospel says it prepares us and equips us to take on anguish and pain to see Christ formed in others. He has purposefully brought stress into his life for the good of others so that they might have Christ formed in them. It reminds me of Romans chapter nine where Paul says, I am willing to just not taste all of the goodness that I've tasted so that other people others of those who have not yet believed, that they would know this. There is a a singular focused effort and drive. And so this morning, I wonder if you're doing this. Are you leveraging your life to see Christ formed in others? And if you're not, why not? Do you know something about the anguish that Paul's describing here? I just want you to know the gospel frees you from feeling like you need to protect yourself. The gospel frees you from feeling like you need to hold yourself back because of fear. The gospel frees you from all of the fears of the cost and making yourself an enemy to others. And so this morning, we have the privilege in the midst of this study through Galatians and our celebration about what it means to be made right with God, by, justified by faith alone, to stop and to look around and go, man, I long for others to have Christ formed in them. When we love our brothers and sisters, we long for them to know this freedom. And we grow in our love for them whenever they hold the gospel to us and we hold the gospel to them. We tell them the truth regardless of the cost. We delight in making much of them and we do everything necessary to see Christ formed in them. This is what love looks like. And this is what I pray would mark Covenant Life Church for the days and the months and the years and the decades ahead until the Lord would tarry. And so let's pause. And let's remember this gospel. And let's delight in this gospel. And then let's ask the Lord to help our hearts be filled with love so that we can respond rightly to this gospel. Let's pray. God, would you make us a people who know how to plea? And would you make us a people whose lives are poured out for the purpose of seeing Christ formed in others. And so, God, I pray that in this moment of silence, you would make clear how we ought to respond for the good of others and for the glory of your name.